In the first two chapters, Clement praises the Corinthian church. In chapter 3, Clement addresses the envy of the rebels who threw out their priests. This is the reason for Clement writing this letter, and it is more clearly revealed toward the end of the letter in chapters 44, 47, 54, and 57. In chapter 4, Clement reminds the Corinthians about how envy afflicted those in the Old Testament scriptures. Envy killed Abel, made Jacob run from his brother, persecuted Joseph, made Moses run from Pharaoh, punished Aaron and Miriam, sent Dathan and Abiram to Hades, and even caused David to be persecuted by his own king. Clement reminds them in chapter 5 about how envy afflicted even the pillars of the church, like Peter and Paul in their own day. In the sixth chapter, Clement adds that envy was the cause of divorce and the persecution among faithful women. In chapters 7 and 8, Clement calls the rebels to repentance in the manner of Noah and Jonah, and he expresses how the scriptures declare the greatness of repentance. In chapters 9 through 12, Clement asks them to copy the righteousness, faithfulness, and obedience of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Lot, and Rahab. In chapters 13 through 15, Clement says to be humble and obey God rather than man by following those who cultivate peace. Then in chapters 16 through 19, Clement tells them to be humble, like Christ, Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, Abraham, Job, Moses, and David. In chapters 20 through 23, Clement says the days, seasons, and the order of life declares how the world was created to work in peace and harmony. Therefore, man should be consistent with such a created order. The elderly should be honored, and the young men should fear the Lord. God confirmed these things in the scriptures, and we should prepare ourselves because Christ will come again. Clement continues in chapters 24 through 26 and says that the day-night cycle, the sowing of seeds, and the phoenix show us that creation itself testifies to a death and resurrection. Therefore, we will also be resurrected. He continues in chapters 27 through 30, saying that because we will be resurrected, we must bind our souls to Christ in repentance, knowing that God sees all things. He adds that we must draw near to God in purity of heart, avoiding what God hates and cleaving to what he loves. In chapters 31 through 36, Clement says we obtain God's blessing when, like Abraham, we work righteousness through faith. For it is by faith that we are justified, and by works that our faith is justified. We must strive to cooperate with God's will, because every man will be judged according to their works, and great is the reward for good works. The only way to share in the promises of God is to not provide lip service, but to do the righteous works which align ourselves to His will. All blessings are given through Christ, and everyone who sets themselves against the will of God are His enemies. In chapters 37 through 42, Clement says, like soldiers under a general, the laymen should submit themselves to their bishops and priests, and not exalt themselves above anyone, because man has nothing to exalt. This is how the church is to be ordered, and it has always been this way. Bishops and deacons have been part of God's order since ancient times. He continues in chapters 43 through 44 by arguing that just as the rod of Aaron was publicly chosen by God for the office of the priesthood, so too did the apostles publicly ordain bishops to succeed them through the authority given to them by Christ. 
Clement then shifts gears in chapters 45 through 47 and says there is no evidence of righteous people ever being persecuted by righteous people. Therefore, he argues that throwing out God's priests is obviously not of God. Paul already had to deal with this sense of tribalism over Peter, Paul, and Apollos when he wrote his letter, so remember his words. Clement then calls them to repent in chapters 48 through 56 and return to the practice of brotherly love because we must keep the commandments of Christ. He tells them there is nothing greater than love and that we should pray for mercy. He again tells them to repent and to not harden their hearts because the Lord desires confession. In the way that Moses shows his love by offering himself as a sacrifice for wicked people, so too those who have love will offer themselves for others. He says there are many examples of this kind of love, such as Judith and Esther. He adds that one should not feel unloved simply because they are being called to repent, because scripture says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In chapters 57 through 59, Clement again calls the leaders of the rebellion to repent. He says it is better to repent and occupy a humble but honorable place among the flock than to exalt yourself and get thrown out of the kingdom. Clement concludes by telling the Corinthians to notify the Church of Rome when there is closure and unity among them. Thus ends First Clement. And now Gary and Alvin will discuss the person of Clement, the origins of the Church of Rome, and the background of this letter. All right, um, so let's probably get on the same page regarding some of the details of First uh, Clement. I'm guessing we're going to talk about, obviously, some of the historical context, and we can go on from there, because I don't want to say something and you're like, whoa, well, mm-hmm. I totally disagree with that, <laughs> and then yeah. that would be awkward. <laughs> um, I figured we'd start with just talking about the origins of the Church of Rome. Right. Um, and then like, who is Clement? Mm-hmm. Um, and like his thing I wanted to talk, one of the things I want to talk about was, um, the historical account of like his line of succession. Then we'll right. have to get into that. Yeah. And then, then we'll just go over the letter. But as far as the background goes, that's where my head was at. Okay. Um, so where do you have, where date wise do you have, uh, Clement of Rome situated? So... There seems it seems to be all over the place with that. Right. Um, I'm sure you found the same thing. Right. It could be any anything from Nero on. Right. Um, yeah, I have like uh, dates from like around 70 uh, AD to 120. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I, um, the consensus I see from some scholars is around late 90s is what i'm saying which would uh, corroborate with clement's actual position as a bishop yeah um so i, I didn't know if you went, wanted to actually talk about you know solid dates or whatever um i mean we don't have to which is totally fine i just wanted to make sure that we uh were, were on the same page regarding like historical context and what we um are and aren't going to say no man it's um, fine like i i want to get into the the depths of it so yeah. that's that's all good um, the okay. thing that I came to, or I should say it's a suspicion of mine, that this letter seems to be parallel in terms of dating with um, Revelation. Yes. Do you get that? Well. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's just been kind of my, my suspicion. 
Yeah. Um, so One scholar actually places it like within the same time frame, and they were talking about the persecution under uh, Domitian. Yeah, and I think like so, depending on whether or not Revelation, mm-hmm. like whether it's the late, earlier date or later date, I think that is going to dictate where this text is at. So. Mm-hmm. Like, for me personally, I think the earlier date for Revelation makes more sense. I know that's kind of the minority position at this point, but I just think it's it seems to be Nero more than Domitian. Right. But, so, I mean, if that's the case, I don't know if it is, that would then suggest that Clement is from the same um, period. But as far as, like, I wanted to also talk about, like, the actual origins of the Church of Rome. Like, where'd that mm-hmm. come from? Right. And what I found was, according to uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, Peter and Paul founded the Roman Church together. And he says, quote, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. And that was mm-hmm. in Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 1. And that in particular is pretty interesting to me because he, he claims that, well, it seems that he's claiming that um, Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome at the same time Matthew was writing the gospel. Yeah. So that was peculiar. Um, Ambrosiaster has a different account, which for the listeners, Ambrosiaster is a now unknown author formerly attributed to St. Ambrose of Milan. Mm-hmm. Um, he states that Christianity in Rome began amongst the Jews, possibly sparked by the day of Pentecost. Uh, a Christocentric Jewish rite began in Rome, and eventually Peter and Paul went baptizing and laying hands on them to be officially received into the church. Yeah. Um, and according to Protestants like Don Carson and Douglas Moo, Letter of Romans, they say, clearly suggests that Paul was a stranger to the church of Rome. And they say this due to only two places. Romans 1, 10 through 13, which says Paul wanted to visit Rome, and Romans 15, 22, which simply says Paul was hindered from visiting. Um, I think it's beyond a stretch to say that Paul was a stranger to the Romans because of these passages. I mentioned to you, like, I think a couple of weeks ago that about this, and I mean, my, my argument is like anybody can write a letter to their mother saying they wanted to visit and was hindered from visiting, that doesn't mean they never visited. At the very least, writing a letter to someone means you probably met them. Like, whose address is Paul putting on that letter? Which synagogue is going to receive it? You know, like, these are questions that kind of presuppose some form of relationship, I think. I mean, there there is some sense of authority that he has, um... I'm not sure if I would state it probably as strongly as you, but I, I would say that Paul has some authority that he expects those Roman churches to have, especially if his letter is going to circulate as some type of statement with some type of worth. I mean, he's not going to write, you know, he's not going to have a letter sent without some type of expectation that his uh, words are going to be heard. Mm-hmm. So um, how they came, how the Roman church came to know St. Paul or, or the origins of it. I think that's possibly still, it's still up for debate, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I don't think he was necessarily a stranger. He, he had to have some type of notoriety uh, within those circles. He was going to send a letter. Yeah. Especially since he doesn't give that much personal information. 
So especially if you're going to send a letter to someone um, without giving, he doesn't give as much uh, of his own biography as he does in his other letters. Um, in those, and, and in those, he's, he's actually, we know he visited and he was a part of. Mm-hmm. This one, it just deals with uh, theology and then some of their internal issues regarding whatever their divisions or whatever. Now we're spending too much time talking about Romans. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Church of Rome. Um, uh, Tertullian claims that Clement was consecrated by St. Peter. And then this one scholar believes that since Clement lived in Rome, it's certain possible that Clement may have known both Peter and Paul, at the very least familiar with the communities that they founded. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so like with the question of who is Clement, mm-hmm. I have that Clement was most likely a Roman Gentile who appears to be working alongside Paul in Philippi in AD 57. And mm-hmm. Paul mentions him in Philippians 4.3. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the common understanding is that Clement was fourth in line after Peter, Linus, and Cletus, which is um, St. Jerome's fourth century interpretation. But he also said most Latins think Clement immediately succeeded Peter. This is confirmed in the second century when Tertullian said just that, in chapter 32 of his work, Prescription Against Heretics. What I find most interesting is in the book of Pontiffs, it says Peter ordained Linus and Cletus for priestly service so that he could have time to devote himself to prayer and teaching. And I've been trying to synthesize all of this information, and I think I figured it out, but I wanted to get your input. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a neat succession of bishops in the first century Rome, simply because any startup is always a bit chaotic at first. And I, right. I would say that includes the church. Um, and it takes time for things to smooth out. So I'm suspicious that it might be anachronistic to see these four bishops in particular through the lens of later succession of bishops. Um, I think it's possible that Peter ordained Linus and Cletus as bishops who were in operation at the same time as himself, but were not doing the things Peter did. In other words, Peter, Linus, and Cletus were all called bishops, but their roles in the church were different. So there's overlap. What's also difficult is during this time that the terms uh, presbyter and bishop sometimes yeah, yep. used interchangeably. Yep, and that's what kind of like sparked this suspicion because it doesn't, it seems like the terminologies don't separate until later. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think Peter had Linus and Cletus in a role much like a modern priest, whereas Peter was almost more like a modern day metropolitan. Mm -hmm. I think Clement came in succession to the role of Peter rather than the priestly roles of Linus and Cletus, which would explain why the historical account says that Clement was both the second and the fourth bishop after Peter. Clement was second after Peter in role, but fourth after Peter in ordination. Mm-hmm. And it would also explain why Clement was the only one writing to the church and not the other two. It's particularly interesting theory. So that's that was my synthesis of the information. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't have enough uh, resources to say that you're wrong. Um <laughs> So I will only say that it's interesting and sounds uh, good. <laughs> it sounds good to me. <laughs> it sounds good must be true. Alternative yeah. facts. Yeah. Yeah, whatever pleases my ear. <laughs> um, 
Uh, let's see. Um, this Jesuit scholar also makes an interesting claim. Catholics are inclined to see in the epistle an actual proof of their belief that even at that early date, the Bishop of Rome was regarded as the head of the universal church. Uh, but there is no explicit expression in the letter of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. Yet neither is there anything in this particular epistle to clash with this belief. That was all from a particular Jesuit scholar. So there's even the uh, the Catholic approach to this letter as, you know, Rome is already taking charge of the other churches. What do you think about that? Uh, it's hard to make arguments from silence. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, I don't think the Catholic argument has any particularly has any particular weight to it, mm-hmm. mostly because you have to assume certain things in order to arrive at that interpretation. Yeah. Clement never tries to reinforce some type of Rome primacy here. So I I don't find it a particularly strong argument. Right. I mean, you could just say if if the, the laymen were throwing out their priests in Corinth, why mm-hmm. would they listen to their own bishops? So that would kind of force Clement's hand a bit, I would think. Right. So you could just make the argument that Clement is just writing to them based on necessity and not based on right. any particular primacy. Right. Yeah, and he doesn't... And it's not found within the rhetoric or, like, implied. Right. I mean, you would think that, you know, if he was going to try to reinstate these priests, he could just say, well, I'm the Bishop of Rome. I have primacy. Right, right. You know, just listen to me, you know. he. But he tries to appeal to them. Um, and in that appealing is this type of understanding that the there's a certain understanding of authority implied mm-hmm. there yeah. that isn't dependent on this idea of primacy. Yeah. So that's what I would say. So uh, let's see. The, the letter is an occasional letter, right? Uh, Clement right. is addressing mm-hmm. a specific people with a specific problem. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners, the problem is that there was a small group of laymen who banded together and formed a kind of congregationalist faction and threw out their blameless priests because they didn't want to acknowledge the clerical roles given to them, um, right. given to the church, or submit to the earth to any earthly authority. So, in other words, they had this whole, it's all about me and Jesus mentality, and yeah. no man can tell me what to do. Yeah, it's just the development of the, the issues they were having with Paul. Right. Yep. Which is particularly interesting that the community has survived this long and it still has the same issue. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, cool. Well, I think uh, those were all of my major questions regarding getting on the same page. Um, nice. So I'm ready whenever you are. Sure. Um, the th- I have the theme of the epistle is unity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the words peace and harmony as a combined total are mentioned like 34 times. Um, so that's like the central thrust of the text is Clement is trying to get these these rebel leaders to to unite themselves once again and um, reestablish their priests that they were trying to throw out and basically just repent and submit and bring unity once again. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yep. Uh, yeah. Basically, don't rebel against your priests because uh, they know better than you. And <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> he he makes the. He specifically says, um, because they're blameless. Right. Um, like, 
these priests were unjustly deposed. Yeah. And yeah, so like there was that Part clarification. Part of me can't help but feel that um, uh, there is a hint of sarcasm, even though that's probably a very modern uh, import into the text. Uh, I just can't, like the beginning of chapter two, you're all distinguished by humility and not puffed up with pride, but yielded obedience rather than extorted it and more willingly to give than to receive. Yeah. I'm just like, is he just trying to like fluff them up or just, I, is he like... The, fr- yeah. <laughs> the first thing I thought when I read that was, here's a guy buttering the pig before the slaughter. Yeah, okay. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that got that sense then. Yeah. So Clement has an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, yeah. He quoted um, or referenced like the Septuagint version in particular. He made references somewhere around 100 times in the Robert Donaldson version. Mm-hmm. Um, he also quotes from the Apocryphon of Ezekiel. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, in chapter 8, which for the listeners, it's an unknown version of Ezekiel, and it's yeah. found nowhere else really. It's there's just fragments spread across like different texts of antiquity, yeah. and Clement just has one of the fragments. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's it seems to me like it's just an alternate version of Ezekiel. Do you yeah. get that? Yeah. Um, I did some reading on this particular version of Ezekiel. And, I mean, you basically kind of, like, hit the general contours of the issue is that uh, there's various passages floating around attributed to Ezekiel, but also similar in content, and it's really hard to determine kind of, like, where they belong or whatever. So. Yeah. But but it's interesting that he, he actually uses it um, within his argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which has implications of, you know, how the early church understood the canon. Yeah. Um, and on that note, I mean, he... Like you said, he exactly. references alternate books like The Wisdom of Solomon in Chapter 3, Judith in Chapter 55. In Chapter 42, like he quotes Isaiah 60, 17 from the Septuagint, which mm-hmm. specifically says, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness, their deacons in faith. He, There's an oddity I found at the end of Chapter 17, mm-hmm. um, which, which is the quote about the smoke of a pot. And I read that it might be misplaced. Yeah, that it might be like be intended to be at the end of chapter 18 because it fits more with the part about David. Yeah, and I think uh, with about sacrifice. Right, and there's references in chapter 23 and 29 that seem to be like a combination almost of multiple verses mm-hmm. that he's like almost from memory taking like three different verses and putting them together. Yeah, and saying scripture says this you know yeah so that was interesting yeah it is really interesting especially since it's a massive of uh james and possibly second peter um Mm -hmm. which are wildly wildly different texts um so yeah it's really interesting oh and then we also have to hit on the topic that uh first clement was actually put in some lists of being included in the canon um yeah i mean this this letter you know in the corinthian church they use this letter as canon yeah and I guess we should talk about like what the canon means because it's fun. I'm yeah. actually taking a class on uh, formation of the New Testament canon right now. Oh, that's convenient because yeah. there's a lot of misinformation out there. Oh, uh, so, yeah. So it seems to me like I've studied this topic a decent amount. It's fairly obvious that there was no one universal canon anywhere for anybody. 
Like right. The ca- canons were regionally based. So, mm-hmm. like, for example, this particular church of Corinth had mm-hmm. Clement in their canon. Or mm-hmm. if you had, you know, if you were in Syria and you had the Syriac Peshitta, like St. John Chrysostom did, mm-hmm. you would have, you know, Jude and Revelation and First John or whatever, like, yeah. missing from your, your, your canon. Oh. So, but also... As far as what canon means, I think, needs to be talked about because, like, my understanding is a canonized text doesn't mean you don't read it at home or it's not authoritative. Like, like if something isn't canon, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, to me, something canonized seems to be something that is read liturgically in the church. Yeah. So, you know, like, we're both Orthodox, so, you know, on at Divine Liturgy, there's the gospel reading, the epistle reading, you know. Yeah. I think a canonized text takes that position. Um, the issue, the immediate issue that pops up though is the uh, revelation, which is not read. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, obviously that's a, a major oddity within. The- it is because revelation was at first accepted, and then through the whole controversy with Montanism and their emphasis on a literal reading of the text, you know, Eastern Christianity mm-hmm. kind of like tossed it out of their canon yeah. and then claims, you know, to have re-accepted it. But I wonder if it ever like was truly re-accepted into liturgical services. I know in the Coptic Orthodox Church, they read from Revelation, uh, I think it's sometime during Holy Week. Um, I mm. think maybe it's, it's the... On Holy Saturday, uh, the Coptics read uh, bits from Revelation. Uh, so I find that particularly fascinating. I need to message my uh, um, friend again. He's a he's a deacon in the Coptic Orthodox Church, and he lives in England. Hmm. So I need to get some information on him regarding that. And I wonder if that also has to do with like which liturgy you're using and mm-hmm. which like you know the church calendar and stuff. Yeah. Because in the past there were multiple liturgies, and yeah. you know now we just use the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, that might explain some of it, too. I don't know. Yeah. Because I think they use, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, St. Basil's liturgy. Mm. They use a different one for their standard format. Not sure. Yeah. Um, but, Clement, Clement was floating around as a canonized text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as authoritative. Yeah, it was being read in the churches. Right. We could say that, yeah. I guess my, my point in saying that was, I mean, in many Protestant circles, there's this understanding that, or I should say misunderstanding, that if something isn't canon, then it's not authoritative. Right. And you don't have to read it, you know, you don't, you know, it has no effect on you because it's not canon. And that, that's just not how texts were used in antiquity. Mm -hmm. Like Athanasius says, you know, he's given the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas to catechumens. Yeah. So clearly we are supposed to read these texts and and live by the wisdom contained within them. Yeah. Like that's that clearly that can't be what canon means. Right. If these texts are given to catechumen, you know. It also complicates the idea of um, translating from the Hebrew in, uh, in Protestant Bibles mm-hmm. instead of the Septuagint. Because the Septuagint was the implied text within Christian churches, is you know they they're reading most more likely than not from the Septuagint. Definitely. So I mean, so whenever we talk about canonized texts, we also have to keep in mind that the New Testament, a lot of the uh, New Testament references um, of the Jewish scriptures, more likely than not, they were Septuagint references 
Yeah. Which, which says something about the nature of authority of the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. I know some Protestants are actually trying to make a movement towards that. One of my friend's professors, I think he wrote a book or a paper on it, which I found fascinating, but I doubt, I mean, I doubt anything's going to really come out of that. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully, something will come out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Do you have anything so, else to say about the um, textual criticism side of it, or... No, I think that um, you good? that hits all the high points. Yeah. All right. 